Welcome everyone to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and foster care. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am your host and the director of Creating a Family. Today, we are bringing you a very special treat. In honor of this season, we are bringing back an interview I did with Dr. Karen Purvis on raising and healing abused and neglected kids. Dr. Karen Purvis is the author of The Connected Child and The Connected Parent and the founder of the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development at TCU. I consider my interviews with Dr. Purvis to be some of the highlights of my career, and this one is especially meaningful to me because she recorded it to help us celebrate reaching our 1 million downloads of the Creating a Family podcast in 2015, and it was recorded just a few months before she died. Dr. Purvis was a force for good in the lives of so many children and families, and she was a force for good in my life as well. Keep in mind that the sound quality won't be up to our current standards, but the information is beyond good. I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. Today's show, we will be interviewing Dr. Karen Purvis about raising and healing abused and neglected kids. Dr. Karen Purvis is the author of The Connected Child, and she is the founder and director of the TCU Institute of Child Development. She is also a passionate advocate for children from hard places. Welcome back to Creating a Family, Dr. Karen Purvis. Thank you so much. It is wonderful to be with you again, Dawn. You are. I, I, I neglected to mention that part of our One Million Listen celebration is having special guests, and you are our first special guest, and we are we love it when you come. I thoroughly enjoy uh, talking with you, and, and your wisdom is uh, has just been a huge asset to um, uh, pre- and post-adoptive families in our, our large online community. L- let me ask a quick question, though, before we jump in. I know you've been having some significant health problems, and we uh, had a number of people who wanted to know how you were, how, how are you doing now? Do you know I'm doing really well? Um, I was diagnosed with uh, a, a return of cancer about a year ago, been doing treatment. Um, you know, it's a sweet thing. All of my needs have been met lavishly, and I'm doing great. You are blessed, and I'm so glad to hear that. All right, jumping right in. Um, and I'm going to start with a really general question that just will kind of get the ball rolling. Why, just, and it, it, it's, it's general, but it also, I think, gets to the heart of what some people struggle with when they're thinking about changing their parenting style. Why is parenting kids who have been abused or neglected different from traditional parenting? Or why should it be? Maybe that's the better way to say it. It's <laughs> a good way to put it, Dawn. You know that for a child who had a protected pregnancy and a protected life, it's easy to make connections and it's easy for them to understand our intentions and they have a background of trust. And so if we do something wrong, and all parents do, it's just part of being human the child is able to forgive us and still trust us. Um, For a child coming from hard places who may have had stress from the uterus Mm. and may have had profound neglect or harm, they don't have the capacity to trust because they've never learned it. And we have to have parenting strategies that don't re-traumatize children and that is very, very different from a child who's never been harmed. And and that's the crux of everything that, that you teach. We have, uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and read a question from one of our audience. We've got quite a few. Uh, and this one actually kind of just made me smile. Uh, she says, we will be traveling to China to get our seven-year-old next month. What are the three most important things I should do the first six months home? This is a woman after my own heart. I love that. You know, uh, okay, tell me three things. Yes. Tell me, yes. six months, yes. She's, yes. she's defining yes. it for you there. So let me start with the first six minutes. If she hasn't oh, met perfect. him before, lower yourself to his height. Look into his eyes. Don't get too, too close as though you were familiar, depending on what kind of care he's had, it might frighten him. I would say learn a few sentences or a few words to use in that first few minutes. 
look into his eyes gently, but if he looks away, you look away too and then come back to his eyes in a minute and then look away when he looks away. He's telling you it's too much. How we say hello, and maybe hello is all she needs to learn in Chinese, but how we say hello has a lot of power in setting the bar for where we'll go from there. Matter of fact, there's one research study, you may be familiar with it, Dawn, that shows that there's a spiral that starts either up or down at the point of the of the meeting. So what we want to do is be for the first three uh, for the first three minutes, the first six minutes, the first three months, the first six months, I want to be giving a child his voice. Now that's gonna be a little tricky because he's going to come with a different language. So how are you going to do that? What's your plan? Do you have three-by-five cards with some important words and pictures so you all can communicate? Uh, Are you going to bring a translator into the home the first few weeks? Remember how he settles in will make a lot of difference in the long-term transition. Do you recommend him? Let me ask that question because I know that some people – um, feel like that having a translator uh, slows down the child learning English. Do you agree with that? Do you know, I would say as a trauma uh, exploration that everything I can do to help that child know he is safe with me very quickly is going to help him for the rest of his life. So I've got Matter of fact, I'm working on a book for foster parents right now. And in the first, when I open the screen door and and the social worker drops a child at my door, what do I need to be doing? How do I do the entrance into the home? How do I do the first night in my home? How do I do the first trip to the grocery store? Remember that your child's brain development is, very, very, very young. Matter of fact, research suggests that it is 40% of his developmental age. I treat all children, if they're 17, if they're 19, if they're four, as though they had large fear. You know, Dawn, one resource that you may have, uh, I don't know if you've loaded the link, but the Disarming Fear chapter from our book is free downloadable on our website and and you could link to that and people could get how to disarm fear the most important thing you're going to do okay perfect good good yeah we will will do that perfect so you know giving him a voice even it's going to be a limited voice but if it's pointing if it's grunting you acknowledge his words because coming from an orphanage no one acknowledged his words most likely um, make sure he has choices that also gives him a voice. Um, when he's able to speak well enough to say, I'm not wearing that coat, you're not really my mother, and you can't tell me what to do. And and most kids will try some different variations of survival strategies. And you're just going to say something that gives him voice, like, oh, buddy, if you're asking for a compromise, let's use some good words, because I'm listening, and I want to help. So I would say disarming fear is your big job. And you can get a lot of information on that chapter that Don will upload on the website. And, and when I, I liked, I really appreciated what you said about the entrance to the home. Now, in this case, she's going to be meeting a child in China. But assuming that somebody is uh, uh, adopting from foster care, so they have a child, they're adopting a child, or, or yeah. fostering a child, um, how can now some of these very same things would apply? The making eye contact, yes. but respect the child when yes. the child looks away. So some of the same things would apply. What are some additional things, however, that you would add for children who are being either fostered and, and as you say, the, the the moment they enter the home? What can we do to uh, make certain our home is perceived as a safe place? Exactly. No, I, I love that question, Dawn. It's due to dear to my heart. Um, But I would say um, if you have warning that CPS is bringing you a foster child or um, the first time your adopted child enters your home, you know, I I used to love to keep cookie dough, cold cookie dough in the fridge. And before my boys came in from the school, I would put, you know, just about 10 minutes before I'd put about a dozen cookies in the oven 
So if you have enough time and you can keep a little batch of cookie dough, put some cookies. When you open the door, they get a whiff of safety because, you know, warm cookies is a message of safety. And you need to know that smell goes straight to the amygdala, which is the fight, flight, or freeze region. So if there's a pleasant smell or even an infuser with something running, you might have that in the home. But here's the, the most important piece. That's the human piece. Most of the time, a caseworker drops a child off. The child has to sit for 30 to 45 minutes while paperwork is done. So you set it up with your caseworker ahead of time. When you first come, I need 30 minutes. And so when that child comes to your door, you you lean down, not in too loud a voice, it'll frighten, but in in a warm, mellow voice, and you make gentle eye contact respectfully. And you say, sweetie, I'm Miss Karen, and and um, I'm so glad you're here. And you say, I would like to show you my house. Can I show you my house? Now, y- you think that may be silly, but here's the child walking into a house. He doesn't know what jumps out from where, right? He doesn't know what's in the closets. Um, and, and I would say to the child, sweetie, do you want to hold my hand or do you just want to walk beside me? I've given him a choice already. He's in my in my door 10 seconds and I've given him a voice. And I would take him through the house and I'd say, this is, this is Tommy's room and he stays here with his little brother. And, do, and if a child wants to look under the beds, if a child wants to look in the closets, I just swallow my shame, right? Uh, my embarrassment about what my closets look like. <laughs> Disarm that child's fear. And then when he's settled in, you can say, do you want to sit here and have some cookies and color? Or do you want to sit here and watch a cartoon beside me while I talk to the caseworker? Right? So I've made him my priority because I know that for the child coming from a hard place, the brain parts for survival are on fire. And I have to calm them. And he will make fast gains in my home when I calm fear and build trust. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay, excellent. Um, Thank you. And the the hard part is that sometimes we don't have notice. But even without notice, you could directly speak to the caseworker and say, I need you to give me uh, some time here, and then then I'll be right back with you. um, That's right. All right. We have a question from Sarah. She said, we adopted two siblings two and a half years ago. They are currently... 9 and 11. No, I'm sorry, 9 and 7. I am struggling with how to discipline them. The 7-year-old in particular can be very defiant. I want to establish attachment and connection, but her poor behavior is making life miserable for our whole family. How can we discipline and keep connected? I particularly appreciated her last sentence there because I think this is a challenge for many. In fact, I know it is. Um, We have, at Creating a Family, we have a very large online support group, and this is a question that we get over and over and over again from families and parents who are struggling with how do we discipline because discipline is important, but on the same time we know that these children have been hurt and we know that they're frightened and we know that some of their behavior problems are coming from their prior life experiences, but they still, but we still have to make progress. Yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So this is a question that we're asked most often. Now, I don't know if you're aware, Don, that our trust-based relational intervention has achieved evidence-based status, okay? So that means that we've published a lot of research about how quickly kids can heal, okay? Um, When we talk about behavioral change, Every level of behavioral change at every level of risk gives this child a voice, okay? So at the first level, it's the child has been playing and all of a sudden they're mouthy. And they might say, I want a snack. And your big job, your biggest job as parents or as caregivers is to catch it at that level when you can. So that means stay close um simplify your life, stay near where the children are. And then when they say something, you say, whoa. So like for playful engagement, which is the first level, nobody's in danger. My response is something like, whoa, you want to try it with respect? 
or are you asking or telling or something playful that just nudges the child back online. Now, at the second level, maybe the child's a little more persistent. So let me point out this. At level one, when I say, are you asking, are you telling, I'm giving the child a voice, but showing him how to use it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does. So at level two, the child might be more persistent. Maybe I'll do something like, um, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not wearing my coat. But if you're asking for a compromise, then you need to use your good words because I'm listening. Now, again, I'm giving him a voice. Tell me what you need. And I will work with all my power to meet your need. But we need good words, okay? Now, at the level one, it takes about uh, a minute or less to bump a, the, but nudge the little guy back online, right, under my wing. That's where he's going to learn. That's where he's going to be safe, tucked under my wing. It takes about a minute to do it there. At, at structured engagement... Maybe I offer choices or maybe I offer a compromise. But in in both cases, again, I'm giving voice. That might take me five minutes if if it's a little more persistent. Maybe not. At level three, we, we call it calming engagement, and that's where a child is starting to get wired. And they're going to be out of control at level four if I don't do something to stop it. So I'm going to help the child. I'm going to do one of two things or one of many things, but kind of two categories. On the one category, I might do a traditional think it over, never a time out. We don't, take, we don't send the children away from us. We say, I'm here to help you succeed. So we don't talk like that to each other. I want you to sit right here at the kitchen table while I do the dishes. And when you're ready to tell me what you did wrong and how you can do it right, Say ready and I'll come. And so, again, when they say ready and we go to them, they will use their words and tell us what they did wrong, how they could, so baby, how could you get your need met without doing, without hitting your sister? Well, you know, I wanted the puzzle piece. How, how could you get it without hitting? Well, I could have used my words. Do you want to go pry, try that now? And you let them practice using their words, Right. Now, we've had kids who are violent, who the wheels are off or coming off, and sometimes it, it will take a containment. Um, you only have to be specially trained. There's probably a two- or three-day training before you ever do this because this is dangerous. But when the child is calm again, we hold their hands and we look into their eyes and we say, baby, can you tell me what you need because violence is the language of a child who doesn't have words yes say that again that's that's, yeah that's important violence is the language of a child who doesn't have words Mm -hmm. um the the voice is so powerful and they should have learned from a loving mother and daddy at birth that when they called, somebody came. But for our children, they called and no one came, or they cried and they called for the offender to stop hurting them, but the the offender liked their cries and hurt them worse. So they have no trust in their words. We have to teach them. See, here's what I say in brief about us. We take away violence, manipulation, triangulation, and control. By giving voice, that is not okay, buddy. You do not say you're going to kill me. You take a breath and give me words I can understand. Because if it's in my power, I'm going to move heaven and earth, and I'm going to meet your need. But I need words I can understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I will tell you a, a funny story about the think it over and one of my kids thinking over. We had a chair. It was a think it over chair. And uh, he uh, he figured out the system very quickly. And before his little bottom hit the chair, he was had already thought it over. He assured me, knew exactly what he did wrong, and could spit it out. <laughs> this is what I did wrong. This is what I'll do next time. And this is how I'll make it up to whoever I hurt. And finally, I said, you know, I don't think you've thought long enough. No, Mom, I really have. I've got it all written. Uh, think longer. <laughs> You're gonna think. Oh, they lot are longer. so clever. They are yeah. so clever. But yeah. but you know if. Um, if I continue to give him words, right, 
And and I do think it's okay to say, you know what, you were pretty accelerated, or you're pretty worked up. So I think we just here. I'll just sit here beside you and we'll deep breathe for five minutes, mm-hmm. and then yeah. just sit in silence beside him and breathe. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a question from Renee. She's saying, my son adopted at two and a half is now five. He seems constitutionally incapable of accepting limits in the word no. I'm talking epic meltdowns and tantrums. It's wearing me out, and I'm out of ideas of how to help him. You know, this uh, part of life uh, for adults and certainly uh, part of life for children is being told that they can't do something. Do you have any specific suggestions for uh, for a child who tantrums uh, and screams, yells, or does whatever when in, in order to get his way or, or to, to get over the word no or to be allowed to do what he wants to do? Yeah. So I do absolutely do. So let me tell you that what we know about trauma now is that the limbic system and the amygdala, which are fight, flight, and freeze systems in the brain, are are hyperactivated. But the prefrontal cortex, which is where you have reasoning and logic and executive functioning and planning, this is where your personality is, this is where you um, understand the consequences of your behaviors. So that part of the brain takes in a loving home with a protected pregnancy, that part of the brain takes 20 years to mature, as anybody teaching a six-year-old to drive will be able to tell you, right? But or parenting that part a of the brain, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but that part of the brain is offline. So here's here's what we would do. It's a, it's called the sandwich technique. So think about a, a drug commercial. They're they're um, trying to give us drugs without scaring us to death, right? And so they start out with the rainbow and the little birds tweeting, and there's this drug, and it's going to help you with your um, – it's going to bring up serotonin. It's going to help you not be depressed, um, although there are some side effects, and some of them are pretty serious, but then you go back to the rainbow, right, and the birds. So we call it a sandwich technique. So, sweetie – I know that you really love to do that. That's the outside of the cookie, right? But right now I have to fix dinner. That's the middle of it's gushy that he doesn't want to hear. But let's see if we can make a plan for when we can do that. Okay. Now, here's what I want to say about a child that's wearing a family out. There is um, a heuristic or a rule of thumb. If the behavior, so all children tantrum, all children lie sometimes, all children fuss, all children are um, aggressive with their peers sometimes. But for the child from a hard place, and particularly those who have fetal alcohol exposure, and the national statistic is that 80% of children adopted domestically need parents that understand fetal alcohol, drugs or alcohol and children coming internationally. Now, there's plenty to do, and you could find a lot of that in our work. Um, another another site that just comes to mind for me, Dawn, that you might want to link to is the Empowered to Connect website. It's got like seven-minute shorts about what do I do about lying, what do I do about cheating, what do I do about stealing, that sort of thing. Okay, um, well, I will do that in the... Uh, everyone, the blog tomorrow will be on this, the, the topics of this show, and I will be linking to both the uh, chapter that she referred to and throughout this, the things that we specifically have talked about, I'm going to be linking to in the blog. Okay, go ahead. Thanks for doing that, Don. So here's what I would say. If the behaviors are, they have um, more intensity, more frequency, and more duration, then your child needs mentoring and teaching that has those same three features. So where a child who doesn't have um, inability to get to his prefrontal cortex because of fear, that's going to take me pouring many, many hours into him close under my wing. Now, I'm going to say yes every time I can. Sometimes I have to say no. So I might say yes, I might say yes, I might say yes. I might say, how about after dinner, but yes. 
Um, or yes, but how about dinner after dinner? Because that limbic system is just looking to get survival needs met. But I'm going to have to say a lot of yeses. Uh, we have dear friends, Michael and Amy Monroe, that, that have the Empowered to Connect ministry. And they say to parents that they train, take one Saturday and see if all day long you can say yes. I mean, not if the cat's going in the microwave, mind you, but <laughs> everything that's possible to say yes to that you say yes to. And what we find for parents of, let's say you have a low-risk child, low-risk pregnancy, your child is born, you say yes every time he cries. Yes, I will feed you. Yes, I will hold you. Yes, I will rock you. Yes, I will cradle you. Yes, I will warm you. We don't get that with our children from hard places. They come to our door with these survival skills because they didn't have a voice. And with those survival skills, we have to say our first no inside of five minutes at our door, right? So I have to be creative to find ways to say yes. And, you know, sometimes when you're worn out, and, and parenting children from hard places is tiring. And sometimes when we're it's worn exhausting. out, we, we exa- exactly, and, and we as parents fall into the habit of just saying no because, we just want to break, you know, and so it's right. it, sometimes right. we right. have to be retrained, which is, I think, what the yes. pros are, yes. are getting at. Well, and there's this there's this notion, and I think it's a logical notion. I, I I think it's a very logical notion. He gets out of control so easy. I have to just keep the hammer down all the time, right? You know, because if I let the hammer up just a, an inch, he's going to run me down. You know, and and if you take that analogy out of what you, what we've heard from some parenting strategies and parenting books, you know, just keep the hammer down, keep a, a tight thumb. If you think about the way the brain matures, it matures with exercise, right? So I teach my child to use their words through exercise. So can, can you imagine the football coach who says to the star um, quarterback? Uh, you're you're doing really miserable at at this practice. I want you just to not practice anymore. We'll just show up for the game. I mean, you know, you're never yeah, going to hear yeah. that, right? Right? You're going to hear you're going to practice some more. We'll practice some more with our child. Is not a drill. It's not. I'm not a drill sergeant. It is. I am the coach. I am the mentor. Nobody. That's not okay. But here's again the thing. Catch these things low. Because if I catch them at a level one, it's a minute solution. If I catch them at a level four, it's probably an hour or more. Yeah, or more. Yeah, at times. Or more. Big news, everyone. The Jockey Bean Family Foundation has provided us with scholarships for free access to five of our most popular courses. You can find these courses and the coupon code at the website bit.ly slash J-B-F support. That is bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash all cap J-B-F, then cap S for support. So J-B-F-S, that's all capitalized, then U-P-P-O-R-T. Again, the coupon code to get you these courses free is going to be on that page as well. And the courses are Raising Resilient Kids with Dr. Ken Ginsberg. Raising a Child with ADHD to a Successful and Healthy Adulthood with Dr. Ned Hallowell. Unexpected Stresses for Newly Adoptive Parents. Practical Solutions to Typical Food Issues with Dr. Katja Rao. And Parenting Children Who Have Experienced Trauma with Karen Buckwalter. Make sure you go to the bit.ly slash JBF support to get information on these courses. You are listening to Creating a Family, Talk About Adoption and Infertility. Today, we are talking with Dr. Karen Purvis about how to love, raise uh, children who come from hard places. We are so glad to have you with us. Dr. Purvis, I want to go back to, I was uh, curious about the statistic that you, uh, it doesn't surprise me at all, but I wanted to go back. You said 80% of kids adopted domestically, were you saying have been exposed to alcohol in utero? Alcohol or or to drugs, yes. And is that uh, foster care or is that domestic infant or, or, or both? That is foster care affirmed statistic. It is not 
probably not unlike uh, private adoptions um, because well there's there the number eighty percent is is a confirmed at the at the national level and that's I know for in foster state care. Texas yeah. Yeah, that's for foster care. But for children coming, you know, there are times where there's just a woman who can't who can't manage the child, who doesn't know what to do with the child. Um, she's got too many or she's too poor or whatever that is. So there may be children coming that are not um, exposed to substance, although I would suspect many of them were a high percentage. But the stress to the human brain has a similar effect. And and can I give you one or two things that everybody bringing home a child under three should be thinking about? Is that okay? Yes. Um, if you have studied any of the research of Dr. Tiffany Field, um, she had a prematurely born child. She didn't know what to do. She was helpless. Her little one didn't gain weight very fast. And she realized that when she touched her, she was more animated. And she actually developed something called the infant massage. And if you bring home a child, and, and I, have, I have just recently worked with a little boy that came from hard places at birth, family got him at birth, okay, but he was exposed. And um, they, every two hours after they brought him home, they... Um, did this infant massage, and there's one called Baby, Baby, Oh Baby. I'll give you the link to it when we um, talk. And um, you can put it on the newsletter again. The um, the touch calms the central nervous system. It makes new synapse in the brain. It brings down the excitatory brain chemistry, brings up the healthy chemistry. If you haven't had a chance to do that, you didn't know to do that with a little one, you can um, do something very powerful, very similar, and that is called Will Barger Brushing Protocol because every time you stroke, you have to be trained. It takes about 30 minutes with an OT, but every time you stroke, you actually change the brain chemistry. Um, every time you stroke, you actually change the capacity of the brain because new synaptics are forming, uh, uh, synaptic connections are forming in the brain every time you touch. And, um, and what that will do is a tremendous amount of nurturing and mending to the brain that was harmed by either stress. I mean, Dawn, think about, I mean, there's hardly a circumstance where a child has become available to foster or to adopt where there wasn't loss and trauma. Yeah. We say that about international adoption, too. Um, yes. I think it's less, it used to be people assumed that when they adopted internationally, they were getting children who had not experienced uh, abuse, neglect, and loss. But the reality is children enter state care the world over for the almost yes. always yes. the same reason. And yeah. if we understand trauma we will give our children some common denominators. We'll give them us in large quantity. When you bring a child home, don't rush them off to school. Don't rush them off to daycare. Spend some time. Let them know what a mommy is. Let them know what a kitchen is. Let them know what a papa is. Um, work on them with them during that time on using their words and proving to them through your actions. You should probably give a minimum of seven yeses to one no. Okay. Um, become the playmate, become the ally, become the advocate. So children coming from hard places because they have changes in their brain chemistry um, and their insulin receptor sites from trauma, um, they're going to be hungry. So if, if they go two hours, we ask parents to keep a journal for the first or a, a sheet on the fridge for the first number of weeks till they get into a habit, food every two hours because when our children get a little bit hungry, they melt down. Hydration because one of the chemicals for dehydrated children, children coming from hard places are typically chronically dehydrated from lack of care. And they have a chemical in their brain that causes more behaviors called glutamate. Um, a physical activity, a sensory activity every two hours. Um, I would recommend to everybody that brings a child from a hard place to get a book on sensory processing because if a child has high levels of sensory stuff, 
And they're at the school cafeteria, and the child next to them opens a tuna fish sandwich. The child I serve is going to have a meltdown because that smell went straight to his amygdala. And instead of being calmed by a sweet scent, he's alerted and he's upset. And he'll typically get sent to the principal's office. So I'm going to treat, think about a newborn in arms. I'm going to feed him every two hours um, because I'm holding him. That's a sensory activity. So I'm going, to, I'm going to play games or do sensory activities with a child. I'm going to hydrate them. Um, and I'm going to give them me, all of me, my eyes. I'm going to look gently into their face. I'm going to start watching their pupil dilation. I'm going to start watching when they breathe shallow. I know they're fearful. They've been afraid so long they can't tell you they're afraid. They don't even know it. But you can see the physiological signs. How long do you, and and I will link to some of the resources that we have. We have an interview with the um, author of the book, The Sensory Processing Disorder, and we have some other resources on that, and I will link to that as well. How long do you recommend that parents stay, or one parent, stay home with the child after an adoption? Well, now you're going to have to do a little bit of legwork with the school. Most schools, I've, I haven't found a school that wasn't willing to come in once a week or twice a week. But if you don't have to, the prefrontal cortex is not online. So really you're hammering a, a system when you worry about academics. You're hammering a system that's well, offline. Oh, I see what you're saying. I actually meant parents staying home from work, but I. Yes. But you're answering yes, another yes. question. No, no. That's a good yeah. one. Yeah, that, yeah. I'm, I'm answering. You... Yeah. Yes, I'm answering a part of that that same question. Okay, gotcha. If okay. I could, I would say an absolute positive minimum of six weeks, if it was possible for my husband and I to trade off and take our vacation time. Um, we've had teachers whose teachers gave them time of their vacation days, and they stayed home months, four months. Um, remember that you're setting the course for the rest of your life with this child in those early hours, those early days, those early weeks. So the, would it be fair to say as long as you can, having one parent um, yes. be home? yes. Yes, but now let me let me qualify it. It's not that you're on the phone or the computer and he's at the house. <laughs> it's yeah, that you yeah. are with. It's not yeah. near, it's not around, it's not, you know, close, it's with. Yeah, not playing, playing Candy Crush uh, on your phone or, yeah. That's right. That's texting right. Texting or, right. or, yeah, putting things. That's right. Um, we That's have right. a question from an adult adoptee, and she asks, she says, or I'll just read, she says, I've seen before where you, Dr. Purvis, say that, Adoptive parents become the biological parents through connection. We change their biology. So the adult adoptee is asking this question. She says, I've seen adoptive parents now call themselves biological parents because of that statement. I wonder if it isn't important for adoptive parents to accept that they aren't the child's biological parent. Does their lack of acceptance affect how the child adjusts and reacts? You know, I absolutely have uh, that. That's actually a Daniel Siegel quote, and and sometimes when I have used it in the past, I um, I um, forgot to cite him, so it's actually not mine, but his. But here's what I will tell you: I didn't realize the grief that that would cause because you know what? If you came into a home where there wasn't a nurturing parent. Um, maybe a parent who had issues and wasn't able to meet your needs. Um, it, it's 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 an unkind thing to have said on my part. Um, I don't even use it anymore. I don't even say it anymore. It is still going to be possible for an adult adoptee who's come into possibly what is not a nurturing home. And by no means would I mean to disregard a biological mother who had to give up a child or a biological mother in any in any regards but the the hope is the chance for healing is in nurturing relationships if you came into an unnurturing adoptive home surround yourself as best as you can with people you trust people who are safe people who are nurturing and people who see you for your preciousness and your value and can can encourage you and cheer you on. Okay, excellent. Here's another question. Um, 
she asked Bernadine Anonymous, she says, what suggestions do you have for the fairly typical scenario where mom is the one pursuing the empowered to connect parent training and the trust-based relational intervention training, and she's the one self-educating and retraining, but dad is reluctant, resistant, or really shuts down when that, when that old amygdala is firing away and the lids are flipping all over the place. How do you protect your marriage from being very detrimentally affected by that dynamic? how to preserve the connection between mom and dad. I was glad we got this question because I do think she's right that it certainly seems in, uh, from my rather extensive experience with uh, this with online uh, communities that the moms are often the ones who are getting educated. And sometimes the dad is very accepting and, and is willing to be educated, but sometimes not so much. So suggestions on... On, um, I know you're not a marriage counselor, but you've seen this. No. You've seen this scenario as well. What would you suggest? Yes. Well, I, I would I would suggest a few things. Um, those those individuals who are the the kind of the the one that pursues training, the partner may become more and more resistant with more and more trying to bring education to them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I here's. Here's, I'm going to go back to the basics. I would go back to this. I would go back to try to find nurturing time that is meaningful for you and your spouse. Try to take walks where you're doing bilateral, you're drawing on the brain bilaterally. And, and as you take walks, you are um, able to bring down your stress chemical and bring up some of your healthy, uh, some of the feel-good chemicals. Maybe try to de-stress the talks. Um, don't ever ambush. And and I know that the parent, and usually the mom, as you say, Don, usually the mom um, who's really invested in surviving and having the family survive because the the weight of the of the of the harmed child is great, and you feel that intensity. It's going to be really important to double up on your self-care. It's going to be really important to do whatever you can that's about self-care with your husband. You know, I think a lot of husbands just give up. And maybe some were not as invested to begin with, um, um, which is, is tough when the, when the wheels start to come off. Exactly. So, you know, I would say that when they see something work successfully and they see you start to be refreshed, that they may be more open. Here's what I can tell you about biology. For a mother, there's nothing more unnatural than to not be able to connect to your child and meet their needs. But our children, because they're fearful, push us away. It is the most unnatural thing for a mother. For a father, his biology, everything about him, he's built so different from this mother who's built for procreation or for mothering or for nurturing and for caring, for cradling children. All of her biology speaks to that. And all of his biology speaks to protecting the family. He's he's made different. His hormones are different. And in a home where there's a child from hard places that brings continual chaos, this daddy is disempowered. And all he can do is disengage. So That's a really good point. Thanks. Um, so, you know, and, and let me go back to the point that something that I see not infrequently is that all the energy and all the time uh, from the mom is focused on the children, and that the mm-hmm. dad has a very secondary role. And it seems if, if the one piece of advice that I could give people is that relationship, the, the greatest gift you can give your child is a healthy relationship with the with your spouse. And it, it's it, as you say, find some nurturing, make that a priority as opposed to the last thing that happens, because if it's the last thing, it won't happen. That's right. That's right. That's absolutely right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, great uh, great uh, advice. 
Uh, you are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking with Dr. Karen Purvis about uh, loving and raising children from hard places. Creating a Family has the largest adoption and infertility communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. There are three ways to connect with us on Facebook. You can connect with me personally, and I am Davenport one or we would love to have you like our page, which is facebook.com slash creatingafamily. Uh, we also have a very large, very active, and very supportive online support group. It is a closed group, so you have to request to be joined, and only those in the group can see the post. And that uh, you can find that by facebook.com slash groups slash creatingafamily. Or, quite frankly, the easiest way is just type in the words creating a family in the Facebook search box, and both the page and the group will pop up so you can like the page and join the group. All right, one of the things that we hear is that um, grandparents or extended family often don't understand the type of parenting we are doing. Perhaps it's not the type of parenting they did, um, and so they feel challenged in that way, but, but they also just might think, and usually what we hear is that we are spoiling our kids or, or we're you know, not not doing it the, the correct way. And we mm-hmm. received a couple of questions from people asking about how to handle that criticism, implied or direct, I guess, uh, about your parenting style. So I guess two things. Number one, um, is the m- more information that they can have, I think probably the more cooperative they can be. Now, we haven't got materials written for grandparents at this moment, but um, we have a creating a trauma-informed classroom that we wrote for teachers, that could be another link um, for you, um, Don, to to have. And and it is an article that talks about we have to give the children voice. We have to understand their trauma. We have to understand their history. I think that it might be a good uh, introduction to grandparents. Uh, you know, unfortunately, many grandparents came from the if they're misbehaving, you didn't whip them enough era. Fear the rods, and that's right, that's right. And and I've had uh, mothers who were adoptive or foster mothers who had a child misbehaving in the grocery store, and you know, people in the grocery store would come up and I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I'd do with that child if it was mine. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and oh my goodness, buddy, you've not walked a single step in my shoes. Not mm-hmm. a single step in my shoes. So I would say give them some information, but only a little. Like, uh, And you can tell them um, because they till they ask for more. So what I'm saying is don't take them over seven books and 15 tapes and, you know, <laughs> um, some scientific research on why this works and the other doesn't. Um, the the parents are doing what they think is right. They they're doing what was done to them. And I would say, you know, I understand this is how you were raised. And I want you to know I love you and I respect you so much. But we've chosen a different path. And if you can't give me your support, can you please at least not criticize me? <laughs> Yeah, talk about it subtle. Yeah, and and it's going to be hard. There would be hard pressed to say, no, I really am not going to be able to do that. <laughs> I really need to be negative, Nelly, to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And and, and by the way, may I say this? If they stay with the grandparents when you're away, let's make sure that they know three things that you're doing. So, mom, if he's sassy, I ask him to ask uh, to use his good words. Um, we try to feed them regularly because their blood sugar, if it gets high or low, they're going to misbehave. You know, so give them like three things. That's how we start, like with a school teacher, because my goodness, she's got 30 other children and she doesn't really have a time to read a dissertation on your child, right? But give her a little bit of material and maybe three things that you found that are really helpful. Yeah, and, and the other thing is to, to to specifically ask for their support. I mean, that's right. Some, yeah, I mean that sometimes we aren't getting support, but we're um, but we haven't specifically said it would mean the world to me if you would be on yeah. my team. 
Yeah, yes, that I, I think that's a fabulous, fabulous way to approach a parent because they want to do for you. They want to be – They most parents, even though we make lots of mistakes, we, <laughs> we're trying to do the best we've got, we know to do. Yes, yeah. And and that includes our parents. It's funny. We we tend to think of ourselves, you know, and and we think we're trying, we're trying to do what's best, but but it's hard sometimes for to to extend that to realize that our parents are parents too and they feel the same way That's that they're right. really trying. Uh as hard as sometimes. I mean, there are exceptions, of course, but, but for the yes, most part. Yes, of course there are, but 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 typically a mama or a papa wants their child to be happy and their children's children to be happy. Here's a question from Julie. She said, I am interested in practical tools for encouraging attachment. Now, you've given quite a few, but I think she's looking for kind of a summary. So let's let's just hit some practical okay. tools. Okay. So the first way that a child knows they're safe with us is I meet their needs. I say yes. So when it is possible, put some trust in the trust bank so when you make a, a withdrawal that's a no, you got something to pull on, right? Um, lots of eye contact, uh, gentle touch. Now, some children are not ready to be touched yet, um, so we do a symbolic touch where I might touch two or three inches outside of his arm or touch under his chin, not touch his chin. And I'm going to try to draw that child's eyes to myself in the way that my newborn in arms would be looking up into my face. So I'm going to take that child's face. I'm going to be at their height. If they're down, when I can, I'm going to get down, stoop down, kneel down to talk to them. Um, if I'm, if they're larger, older, I, I'd be able to stand at my height. But with a young child, or a child who really trusts me, I could even touch their chin and say, oh, let me see those beautiful eyes. I'm going to learn to engage. So let the child, so I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. When I brought home my second child, now my first son had been super easy, but when my second son was born, all of a sudden my first son became a two-year-old. I mean, he just was the classic two-and-a-half-year-old. It was not fun. And I took him to the pediatrician. He said, "He said, you know what? There's nothing wrong with him. He's just got a new brother. And so I said to my two-and-a-half-year-old, to your four-month son, I know I'm not giving you as much attention as I used to be able to because your brother needs attention now too. But if you will say to me, Mommy, I need attention, I will finish feeding your brother and put him in the swing and you and I will play and you can set the timer for 15 minutes. Now, I gave them the timer. I gave this little boy the timer. I showed him how to use it and he was the play leader. This is the a, a sure way to a child's heart. He was the play leader and he would choose what we would do is always Sonka trucks and I would sit across from him, legs crossed, however his legs were. I was the mirror image of him. And I would be the play follower, and I would follow him into play. And he would lead me, and I would play with him. And he was so deeply satisfied. Within just about 24 hours, 80% of the misbehavior stopped because he had a voice. He had a way to get his needs met, and he knew that I would be present body, soul, and spirit for those 15 minutes, no putting a load in the laundry, no picking up my phone, no nothing but him. And give him as much power or her as much power as you can. Let them set the timer. Show them how they'll have to go, at least the old kind of timers that I've got, you go to the 30 and then you come back to the 15. And they they know that you're letting them lead. They know that they have a voice. They know that they have power by telling you with good words the voice. Um, another really, really powerful tool is if it's too much for you to sit right in front of them and mirror them, sit beside them, rock them, find time to do reading, find time to do um, this little piggy, find time to do games. Um, the more you give eye contact... And learn learn to read the eyes. As I said a minute ago, a child who's afraid or who's on fight, fight, or freeze, for a little child or a non-pubertous girl, you can put your hand over their heart, and many parents are stunned 
at the heart rate, the speed of the heart. It's stuck there from five years ago before you brought them home. Um, so make sure you know how much fear you're dealing with. Pupil dilation, constriction of the eye, eyelids or dilation, um, shallow breathing, all of those signs. Be attentive. And a, a powerful question for any parent to ask any child, and this is what you would have asked with a, a tiny newborn, by your behaviors, baby, what do you need? You tell me as best as you can, and I'm going to get it. I like to say to the children, I'm a sure thing, buddy. Tell me what you need. You say, I'm a sure thing. Is that what you just said? I'm a sure thing. I'm a sure thing. Tell me what you need. I'm a sure thing. Tell me what you need. I'm, yeah, I'm a sure thing. Yeah. And uh, maybe the first sure thing in their life. That's right. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. It's hard. To, for, it's hard. And, and I would just say this with heartfelt sympathy or empathy for parents because I fostered a, a lot of children. It's hard to realize they've been here with you for three years. How can they possibly still be afraid? Mm-hmm. But research shows that they still have the chemical cortisol after five years uh, in a home um, in excessive amounts. We They don't become unafraid unless we help them learn what safety is. How, how long, what is the research showing that if if you're able to create a safe place, is there a period of time that kind of a rough rule of thumb that uh, safe parenting, safe place, engaged parents, at what point do we start seeing our children's um, fear responses improve? I will tell you that when we do this with intensity, frequency, and um, uh, duration, which like our first place that we learned how to do what we now call TBRI was a summer camp. And we had children come into camp. All of their cortisol was on average twice what it should have been. So we took a cortisol test the Wednesday before camp, the first Wednesday of camp. We saw behavioral magic happen about uh, five days into camp. We were doing the physical activity every two hours with the hydration, the blood sugar, sensory. I mean, we were, we were doing what you do with a newborn. Um, and the next Wednesday, their cortisol had dropped into the half, into the normal range. It dropped exactly half, and it dropped exactly into the normal range. And with the drop, we saw language improvements. We saw behavior improvements. And we saw improvements in trauma symptoms. As a matter of fact, we've recently published a couple of papers um, where we taught parents to do these strategies. And we actually had advances in behavior, which is not news to us, but we had reduction, dramatic reduction in trauma symptoms. Now, here's the trick, Don. I can get dramatic behavioral change by spending one-on-one keeping that child by me in a very short period of time. We've we've changed neurochemistry with just the mother staying a foot away, I mean a yard away for a period of time during waking hours. Um, we've changed cortisol in 10 days or less. But what you need to know is it will take on average one month to one year age for the child's brain to not have to depend on you to regulate, for him to develop synaptic connections of his own so he can do that by himself. I mean, I think I think the take-home message for all parents of children who've been harmed in any way or neglected in any way, traumatized in any way, is stay close, give voice, coach, mentor, and let that child know that there is no one in the world that's quite like him. When he looks oh. into your eyes, he's got to see his preciousness. Amen. That's a great place for us to uh, to stop. And, and if every child had that 
in their lives. And one quick thing, if you can, if you, and I'll try to remember to, I'll send you an email requesting this. If you can send me some of that research, we have I'd a research to. section on our site and we summarize research. We try to be the bridge between the research community and the adoption professional and the adoptive parent community. There's such a disconnect. Fabulous. Yeah, it's interesting fabulous. to me because there's great research going on. And, I know. Uh, but, it never get it never makes it down to the social no. workers on the ground, caseworkers on the ground, and, and most important to the parents. So we really That's exactly are trying right. to change that. If you have enjoyed this show and you want to help us grow, please do us a favor and rate it on podcast. Uh, rate our podcast on iTunes. It is uh, how uh, iTunes knows that to rate us as a number one show and to suggest us, and it really helps, and we would really be very appreciative. Thank you so much, Dr. Karen Purvis, for being our guest today. On oh, creating a family, I will link to the um, uh, site, the, the, the resources you've mentioned, and I'm sure others want to connect with you. And the best way to connect with you is empowered to is the website empoweredtoconnect.org. Any other place you would suggest, or is that the place you want people to go? Oh, to at ourchild.tcu.edu, you can find a lot of resources as well. Okay, perfect. Well, say that one again so that people can hear. Child. TCU for Texas Christian University dot edu for education. Thank you so much for joining us today, everyone, and I will see you next week. <laughs>